Good morning. It is nice to be with you and celebrate this Resurrection Day, uh, often referred to as Easter, but more properly, it is the Resurrection Day. And that's what we can commemorate at this time of year. This morning, in keeping with uh, those activities that normally occur on Resurrection Sunday, we're going to look at a Messianic Psalm, Psalm 2. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 2. Now, there will be a handout that's being passed out. It's a, a one-page sheet. You know, if you can get past the 10-point uh, font, you'll be okay. Uh, if not, I'm sure somebody can loan you their magnifying glass. In any event, uh, it is wonderful to be here. I um, have known Pastor Brown for not as long as I've been at the seminary, but pretty close. And so uh, I think since he was a student at the seminary, he and I and Dr. Combs have been going to lunch for every Thursday for years and years. So I know him quite well. In fact, if you ever want to know some facets that might not be revealed, I can tell you. Just uh, make a special conference with me. In fact, I can even go up to our seminary and show you his files. I mean, I've got to be selective because the government won't let me show you too much. But what I can show could be utterly damaging. <laughs> but in any event, um, I don't think this is the right time to do it. I'd have to do that privately. That way I can deny that I ever did it. So in any event, this morning we're going to look at Psalm 2. In fact, keep your finger in Psalm 2 and turn to Acts 4.25. Acts chapter 4, verse 25. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Now, you need to notice something here. Peter here is saying that God spoke through David. So technically speaking, Psalm 2 is a psalm of David. He wrote it. Now, in that psalm, David says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Now, there's a few things we need to notice here. First of all, this does tell us that David wrote Psalm 2. Secondly, the verses quoted here are from the first two verses in Psalm 2. So, Peter, in this sermon uses the first two verses of Psalm 2 and applies it to Jesus Christ. And those nations, those, can I say, sinners, I mean, like you and I, who crucified him. And so he's using that psalm and applying it to the days of Jesus when he was killed. Now, let's turn back to Psalm 2 then. The reason why I want you to see that is that Ultimately, Psalm 2 finds the culmination in Jesus Christ. 
Now, as I will set forth with this psalm, David is thinking of himself. But David sees himself as the initiator of what we call a Davidic dynasty, a Davidic line of kings. He begins it. God sets him apart in 2 Samuel 7, gives him these promises. The culminating son is Jesus Christ. So he's what we call the ultimate Davidic king. And rightfully so, because he's different than David. He is what we would call the God-man. So he's the one that this finds culmination with. So as we look through Psalm 2, we need to remember David is initially describing something that happened in his day. And somehow that's a setup for Jesus Christ. So let's look at Psalm 2. This psalm, like Matthew 28, 18, tells us that all authority in heaven and earth have been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.22 says that God has placed all things under Christ's feet. So truly, he is our Davidic king. Now he is waiting, he's saving out a people, and he's saving them out to serve him in the millennial kingdom. But that's his mission right now. So ultimately, this psalm, we can see it ties in with Christ, and it has a profound significance for you and I, especially on this resurrection day. So let's, uh, let's ask the question, how did, the people, how did Herod Pontius Pilate respond to David in rebellion? How have others responded to Jesus Christ? Rebellion. How did the people in David's day respond to David? And that is also one of rebellion. Further, how are people who come after us going to respond to Jesus Christ? They say, unless it's by means of the work of saving grace, they will continue to rebel. That's the basic nature of people. And neither myself, or none of you are exempt from that, unless it be by means of saving grace. And so this morning, God has saved, saved us out. He has identified us with Christ. And so the significance of Jesus should be profound for us. But to understand how we get from point A to point B, Jesus Christ, we need to understand point A. And so this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 2. If you'll notice on my handout, I have an outline there. It's two major points. The first part covers verses 1 to 6 of Psalm 2. The second major point covers verses 7 to 12. Let's initially look at verses 1 to 6. And here you need to notice the subject is the rebellious response to God's victorious king. The rebellious response to God's victorious. Notice I did not say unvictorious. I said victorious king. Notice in particular, in verses 1 to 6, the rebellious response to God's victorious king is one that rejects his authority. So usually when you see a subject, you always ask yourself what's said about the subject. In a nutshell, this is one that rejects his authority. Let's look at the, these six verses. The first three verses 
focuses on the nation's response to God's victorious king. In verses 4 to 6, the Lord's reaction to the nation's response to his king. Notice, first of all, A, the nation's response to God's victorious king demonstrate their rebellion. What I'll do is I'll read these first three verses, then I will explain them. If you'll notice the text, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Well, there's three things that we need to notice in these three verses. We notice, first of all, the rebellion of of the nations is reflected by their conspiracy against God's victorious king. So there's this conspiracy here. Did you notice verse 1? It says, why do the nations conspire? That means they're planning a rebellion. Notice something else about the rebellion. It's utter stupidity, foolishness. Did you notice what it says in the last part? The people's plot in vain. That is, it's absurd and it will not come to fruition. So notice here, this is a stupid, wicked idea to rebel against David as God's victorious king. It's foolish. Notice secondly, in verse 2, the rebellion of the nations is reflected by their united stance against God's victorious king. Did you notice in verse 2? Notice the kings of the earth rise up. And notice the rulers band together. Now notice verse 2 is telling us basically what was in verse 1, but it's adding some additional details. Uh, Notice it's the kings of the earth who are united together, rising up. Did you notice it says they band together? So notice this is not a conspiracy of one or two players. This is a conspiracy of a number of nations. And their goal is to throw off the yoke of God's victorious king. You know, often we misunderstand, but in David's day, when you rebelled against King David, you rebelled against God. Look at the last part of verse 2. They band together against the Lord and against his anointed. There's two people involved here. Notice, first of all, it's the Lord. And notice further, it's his anointed. Now, in David's day, every king was anointed with oil. That was part of the initiation. So here, David is picturing how he had been anointed. And notice... That's, uh, we call Jesus Hamashiach, the anointed one. He will be the, he is the ultimate anointed one. But in David's day, that started with David. And so they, th- they want to throw off the yokes of David, but it's sheer stupidity because it's more importantly against the Lord. That's the difference between David any other ruler of any nation. I could fill in the names. I could start here at home. I could spread abroad. 
It, and by the way, it doesn't just take into account Obama. Most of our presidents are not what you consider God-fearing men. But it's anyone. Their goal is to make much of themselves, not much of Jesus. You go to the Arab nations, the same thing's true there, friends. It's, it's not about making Christ king. It's about their own power struggles, their desires to control. So this is what's different with, with King David. His power base was God. What is significant in these two items is that the kings in other ancient Near Eastern cultures were considered to partake of divinity, whether it be Pharaoh in Egypt, whether it be any of the kings in Mesopotamia, any of the kings in the land of Israel, Moab, Eden, in the surrounding areas. They were all considered, when they became kings, to partake of deity. And so they really had special power that our president could not have because they were regarded as extensions of the deity. Now, this is quite a contrast. These kings who are supposedly deities, they're coming against David, who is not deity, but it's his God who stands about his reign. What a contrast. These many gods are going to come against King David with the absolutely sovereign Lord, Yahweh God. Notice, not only that, but we have the rebellion of the nations that is reflected by the rebellious conversation. Did you notice what it said there when we went through it? This is what they're saying. Let us break. So in their united conspiracy, in their, uh, in their secret dialogues, they are saying, let us break their chains. Who's there? God and David's. And let us throw off their shackles. Friends, this is a rebellious conversation. Now, this morning, I don't have time to go through this. But when you go home, if you want to read First Chronicles 18 to 20, you will find how powerful a king David was in his day. He had subjugated the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and all those other ites. And they paid him uh, uh, a financial remuneration. He was the, the suzerain. They were his vassals. Now, he was suzerain with a small s. When you talk about God as a suzerain, it's with capital S. But he was their king. And so David was a very powerful king. And it appears as if in his day, excuse me, I'll have to get a little water here. Hopefully nobody prayed and changed it to wine because I could lose my contract at the seminary. <laughs> um, but it, it's good old-fashioned water. <laughs> no miracle occurred. <laughs> yeah, hallelujah. <laughs> so, notice um, these vassals, they came together with the goal of throwing off the yoke of David and God.
The point of these first three verses is to show how the nations responded to God's victorious king with the goal of rebellion. This psalm has strong implications for what we see in David's day. That's exactly what David's refer or uh, Peter's referring to in Acts chapter 4. They were doing the same thing, except this time it was with the Son of God, capital S-O-N. That's the vast difference. Like the people in David's day, people today still rebel against the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. But what does God think of this type of rebellion, whether it be today or in David's day? Well, notice that's where verses 4 to 6 come in. The Lord's reaction to the nation's response to God's victorious king. Notice this reaction reflects his sovereign control. Sovereign means absolute, his absolute control. Notice the Lord's reaction to the rebellious nations shows this sovereign control in two ways in these three verses. First of all, verse 4. The Lord's sovereign control is reflected by his heavenly mockery. Let me read these three verses and we'll focus more on verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. This goes back to the specifics. Notice here, with this heavenly mockery in verse 4, notice God's laughing. He's scoffing because he's the one with the power. Notice, furthermore, the Lord is pictured here as enthroned in heaven, the one enthroned. Notice, friends, that's the picture of God Almighty. God still, this is a way of describing his absolute sovereign control. He's enthroned. He's in heaven. He's above the earth. He's not on the earth. He is in sovereign, almighty control, even of all the events in our day. You know, we we wonder how people get into power. Ultimately, it's God. You know, uh, how did President Obama get into power? Friends, now, we, we vote people in. But ultimately, that vote comes out exactly the way God ordained it. Exactly. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean we sit passively by. I mean, fortunately, we live in a free country and we do get to vote. I teach Chinese house church leaders once a year. And they're, they were always marveled. I've been there when we've had some elections. Why do Americans take that so seriously? Because they don't understand it. They just live at the dictates of their communist government. And I always try to tell them, we're trying to prevent that type of thing from happening. That's the difference. But they still don't get it. But friends, in a down-to-earth sense, you know, we're responsible and we should do what we do. But ultimately, God's the one who's controlling the card game. Uh, I don't want to sound disrespectful to God, but he's the one in control of the jigsaw puzzle. It's his puzzle. 
so we need to be faithful in what we're supposed to do. But when everything's said and done, we submit to God's sovereign control. And that's just the bottom line for all Christians. So the point is, that's what I mean by sovereign control. Nothing happens in my life, in your life, unless it's by God's sovereign control. I know some of you know that I was, I had a prostatectomy in uh, November, I think it was November 14th. And I can remember three months before when they detected, um, we go through biopsies and things like that and I'll never forget it was a Sunday. It's about a half hour after church. Uh, Dr. Solomon, my urologist, he told me he'd call me on Monday with the results. So naturally, when my wife says, it's Dr. Solomon on the phone, I knew right away there's one reason why you call early. It's because he told me he let me know as soon as possible if it was cancerous. But I can honestly say the two thoughts that first went into my mind God foreordained this for me. And he foreordained it because I need this to grow in my sanctification. Now, I'm not preaching to you on that. I'm telling you the truth. Those are my first two thoughts. Now, you think about it later and you say, man, I wish it wasn't that way. But the point is, is that's what God's will was. Because I understand that's part of a sovereign control. Now, fortunately, things have been good. But it didn't have to be. By the way, the other thing I thought, the third item, prostate cancer is one of the most treatable form of cancers out there if they catch it early. And they'd caught mine early. So that was the third thought. But at that point, I, there were some other uh, ifs there that I wasn't sure about. So you just don't know. But you know, at that point, I said, I am thankful for that. But the first two thoughts... We're about God's sovereign control and also how in his sovereign control. If we're in Christ, he's using those to help us grow in grace. But it's my commitment to the absolute sovereignty of God. I've taught this for years. And when it was my turn to put it into practice, you know, I had to put it into practice or I'd be a hypocrite. But I really believe that. And I want you to believe that. Everything in our lives is a result of God's sovereign control. He has a plan that includes the course and outcome of all events. And the great thing for those whom he has saved out of this wicked world is he is using those things to help us grow in grace. Not to help us get what we want, it's to help us to grow in our submission to him and to grace. Well, that's how the sovereignty of God comes into, into play. Now notice, back in David's day, in particular, God's sovereign control was behind David. And with that, he sees this uprighting and he, he's seated on his heavenly throne, so to speak. He's scoffing at those who oppose King David. He's mocking them. Um, he's, uh, he says, I understand, man, 
But I understand how stupid they are. But notice there's a second thing in verses 5 and 6. The Lord's sovereign control was reflected by his terrifying announcement. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. Notice, this is God doing it. This is most indeed a terrifying announcement. But specifically, we should notice the content of this in verse 6. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. The reason why that's terrifying is that his sovereign king on Mount Zion is going to take care of him. See, I understand that this psalm's written in, in a day when there was a potential uprising against David. And when he hears about it, he recounts the promises God gave him in the Davidic covenant. And when he's doing that, he's mindful that it's his sovereign God that's going to take care of those promises and bring it to pass. So what's terrifying is God says, in rebuking the nations, you ain't seen nothing yet. David will take care of you. And that's what's so terrifying. So that's the point. Now the point of verses 1 to 6 is that the rejection of God's victorious king is rebellious against the sovereign. Yet, my friends, this is the nature of, of all people in our basic state. Whether it be against God in David's day or in 2012 against Jesus Christ. People are in rebellion against God. It's a universal problem. However, when I consider this type of rebellious talk, this rebellious attitude, you know, I'm, I'm always reminded, I think, kind of a microcosm of it was a song by old Blue Eyes himself, Frank Sinatra. He has this song called, I Did It My Way, and it's a brief synopsis of some aspects of his life. And the refrain for all of them as he goes through the song is, I did it my way. My friends, Frankie's problem was he didn't do it God's way. That's the problem. And our problems is if we do it our way, we will have the same problem. We're required. We're not invited. We're required to do it God's ways. That's the point. Well, that's what rebellion is like. And the foolish man keeps on shaking his fist before God. How foolish. Well, let's look at the required response to God's victorious king in verses 7 to 12. Notice the required response to God's king in verses 7 to 12. Notice here, God's got a reaction. Let me set my watch here. I don't want to mess up my timing here. So here, we need to notice in verses 7 to 12, God's reaction to them. 
notice we have three parts to this. First of all, in verses 7 to 9, the Lord's decree concerning the required response to God's victorious king. And then in verses 10 to 12, the conclusion from the Lord's decree concerning the required response to God's victorious king. Notice, if you will, verses 7 to 9, and Lord's de- the Lord's decree concerning the required response to God's victorious king. Specifically, notice how this, how this decree requires humanity in David's day, the people against him, to focus on his king's sovereign role. Now, David's, the sovereignty relates to God, but he's his under-shepherd, so to speak. So, what we need to notice here is in verse 7, the king's sovereign rule, or the basis for the king's sovereign rule. Verse 8, the extent, and in verse 9, its nature. Let's look at the basis for the king's sovereign rule. Is his relationship to God in verse 7. In particular, if you'll notice in verses 7 to 9, he says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Notice the basis here for the king's sovereign rule. It's tied to his relationship to God. Did you notice that language there? You are my son. Today, I have become your father. It's father-son terminology. Now, by the way, it's, we need to be careful here. As In this psalm, it's not son with a capital S. It's a small s. However, we could have father with capital F because it's referring to God. In particular, this father-son terminology, this relates to the Davidic covenant. Let's just turn back briefly to 2 Samuel 7. You need to see where David's coming from here. Look in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. This starts out in about, oh, about 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. That's a dynasty, friends. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, by the way, he is specifically thinking of Solomon here. He's the one who built the house for God. He says, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken from him. 
Now, however, does this also apply to other Davidic kings? Absolutely. Turn over to Psalm 89. See, David was the beginner. The focus here becomes on his son who will build the temple, Solomon. However, he's not exclusively keeping that just to Solomon. He's got the other Davidic kings in, in mind. Look at Psalm 89. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I've bestowed strength on a warrior. I have raised up a young man from among the people. I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil, I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him. And through my name, his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my savior. And I will point him to be my firstborn, the most exalted king of the earth. Now, some focus and say he's an exalted king. But friends, a firstborn is a son. Notice in particular in verses 19 to 20. Notice how he was going to raise up. Um, well, I'm sorry. I should pause there. In 2 Samuel 7, he raised up Solomon. But here, we need to go further to see what he raises up. I will maintain my love to him forever. My covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever. His throne as long as the heavens endure. Now notice, a line is a dynasty. Um, we don't think much of dynasties in the U.S. because we have presidents. I know uh, if Jeb Bush would have been running for president, they would have been talking about a dynasty. In fact, I think they were saying that about George. <laughs> but the point is, it's not a dynasty. That's when the power is going to extend immediately from one son to the other. Every Davidic king in the line of David is part of that line. Notice, it says, his line forever. His throne. As long as the heavens endure. Now, from our vantage point of the New Testament... That can only include Jesus, friends. When it all culminates, there is one king who rule, will rule over all the earth in the millennium and then in the eternal state. Friends, this culminates in Jesus, but it began with David. And so David was the firstborn. He was the son. Today, I've gotten you, I've given you the promises of the Davidic covenant. You are my son. Today, I have become your father. So it's talking about this father-son relationship. Well, I could go on and I'd like to more. After all, I am a seminary teacher. and We're known to sometimes go a little too long. However, uh, I could point to some examples that make me look like a kindergarten cop. <laughs> 
Notice also the extent of the king's sovereign rule. It's worldwide. Did you, did you notice verse 8 when we read it? The extent of David's king was meant to be worldwide. I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Now, by the way, this gives us a glimpse this is more than David. Because David never ruled over a worldwide kingdom. So there are implications here that it transcends David. And that it does relate to King Jesus. Notice, so his sovereign rule is worldwide. But notice also the nature of the king's sovereign rule. Verse 9, it's authoritative. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Notice here. This is a, 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 a strict rule. When they jump out of line, he's going to break them with a rod of iron. This is not, you know, the, that girlish-looking picture of Jesus that looks all passive. By the way, that's a poor artist's conception. But friends, when King Jesus speaks, everybody will listen. And that's the point. When they get out of line, he'll break them with a rod of iron. And he will dash them to pieces like pottery. That was not fulfilled in David's day. The expectation that this is that it goes beyond. So notice, what we need to see here is that with, with God declaring here the sovereign authority of his king, notice, his rule is authoritative. But notice in verses 10 to 13, 10 to 12. Notice the conclusion from the Lord's decree concerning the required response to God's victorious king. Let's read verses 10 to 12. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment blessed are all who take refuge in him notice the conclusion from the lord's decree here is that it focuses on submission to his king notice three conclusion three exhortations here in the final three verses Notice, wisdom is to consider the content of this king's sovereign rule. Did you notice verse 10? It says, be wise, be warned. Uh, that's wisdom. Notice also verses 11 to 12a. Willing submission is encouraged to avoid the king's wrath. Serve the Lord with fear. And celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son. So serve God. Kiss his son, King David, or he will be angry. And your way will lead you to your destruction. Now, I do understand in David's day, this is talking about a physical deliverance. This is what uh, vassal states do. They submit. Here, notice, to not submit 
is really not to serve the Lord with fear. And by the way, I like this expression, serve the Lord with fear. Friends, did you know fear is a healthy thing? We like to downplay it. But the point is, we serve God with a certain sense of reverence and fear. Because he is the sovereign. He is the one who can destroy. When he speaks, he will speak out with fire. Unless he speaks out in saving grace about his son's victorious death and his resurrection. But for now, we need to recognize that that kingdom has not come. In David's day, it cannot, did not come. This is a physical deliverance with spiritual implications. But, but notice the last part of the verse. Willing submission is the courage to obtain the king's favor. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That is, in the Lord. Now, this includes physical, but I think there's implications for spiritual. And so they're called upon to take refuge in him. But friends, may I say, as this applies to our Lord Jesus Christ, it does focus on the spiritual. Did you notice how do we serve King Jesus with fear? We kiss the Son, who could also be called His Son, but in Psalm 2, it's referring to David. Today, we would say, kiss the Son. Kiss was the way of doing homage to someone. You, you get down and you, know, you kiss his feet and whatever was appropriate in the ancient Near East. It's showing submission. Now, it's, it's interesting. We live in a day where, um, oh, we, don't, we really don't like to stress an element of submission when we give some of the gospel. You know, just pray the sinner's prayer and you're okay. Friends, a lot of, most people who pray the sinner's prayer are going to hell. Can I be that blunt? If that's what it was, they're headed straight to hell. Friends, when they come to Jesus, they come with fear and trembling because he is the Lord. Notice, the implications here relate to salvation. You know, I remember when I first got converted when I was in college. I think my senior year, I led 50-some people to me. My Bible teachers, they considered me a hero because I could get anybody saved. Take them out for lunch. You know, do some things with them. So I call that the year of my conversions. But I did tell them about the gospel. I did get them to repeat after me. But friends, I'm afraid the large portion of them were never converted. Friends, we come to Jesus as Lord. Not as some type of benign God who doesn't require anything of us. He requires fear and trembling. 
So notice the implications here relate to lordship salvation. We embrace Jesus as Lord. Not just as Savior. He is our Savior. But it's Savior and Lord. And friends, to me, that's the essence of saving faith. We come to King Jesus. And we submit to him with fear and trembling. Friends, how could we not? He's got the power to damn us all. And for those who don't kiss the Son, they will be condemned. That's the point. So there's strong implications here about the nature of salvation. Friends, I thank God for those of you who have come to Christ with fear and trembling. That's probably all of you. But friends, if you haven't, today's the day to come to King Jesus. What a great day. He died for sinners on Friday. He was resurrected on Sunday. With that resurrection, it shows that God was satisfied with Christ's death for sinners. And because of that successful death for sinners, God raised him from the dead. So, see, for Christians, it's not just about his death. Friends, more importantly, it's about his resurrection. They go hand in hand, hand in glove, all that sort of stuff. You can't have one without the other. But, friends, if you downplay the resurrection... We're downplaying our hope for eternity. Christ was resurrected first, and we in our turn will follow in his pattern. That's the point. Christ is Lord. So I encourage you, if you have not trusted Christ, today would be a good day to do that. And notice, when we come to Christ, let me be more specific here. We come to Christ with no reservations. We're not putting any conditions on him. But may I say, it's not only negative with no reservation, but it's also positive. We joyfully embrace Christ. To this day, I cannot understand what happened when I was converted. My dad had been converted a number of years before me. I prayed sinner prayers. Still... Uh, lived it up and all the type of excesses that were current in the late 60s. You know, that sort of thing. And You know, I had all the answers why I did not need Christ. I had to come up with them. My dad was an engineer. And so I had all these answers. And But I'll never forget, it was one Saturday morning. We had been out carousing. And some of the some friends of mine who were Christians, they were up walking up the sidewalk uh, right outside our dorm window. And for some reason, well, I was a little tipsy, that's the reason. I started shouting profanity at them. And, you know, I'm not just talking about slang. It was, it was bad stuff. I was cursing God. And I'll never forget, I'd heard the gospel hundreds of times. I knew it. I could give it to somebody. But friends, 
you know, I was as wicked as can be. But they talked to me from 11 to 4 in the morning. First part was sober me up with coffee. And the next part was to respond to some of my objections. And sometime four or five, it was before the break of day. And for some reason, I wanted Christ. I knew about Christ. My parents told me about Christ. I'd gone to church. But why did I want Christ? Friends, God regenerated me. He gave me life. And I accepted him without any reservations. And, em- and embraced him with great joy. Friends, have you embraced Christ with that type of joy? That's my point. On this Resurrection Sunday, let me encourage you, if you have not, today would be a great day to do it. I mean, what better day than Resurrection Sunday? And friends, for those of us, which I suspect is most, if not all, we have trusted Christ. Let me challenge you. What about those areas, see, we don't continue our Christian life like we were when we were saved at that moment. At that moment, we were fully sanctified in one sense. But our kinks from our sin nature are still there. And they affect us. And they still affect us. Friends, are there areas of our lives where we've compartmentalized? Our worldview is not distinctively Christian? Now, today would be a good day to say, Oh Christ, I'm going to submit this area, this area, to your Lordship. You know, I've struggled with these areas. But I'm going to submit it to you because I recognize you are the glorious God. And I have no reservations with you. And my desire is to worship you and to do it in a unique way on this specific day. God help us that that would be in our hearts. Let's go ahead and pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this special day, for the Resurrection Sunday. We thank you what Christ's death and resurrection commemorates in our lives, in lives of believers all over the world. I pray that we will worship you and that uh, we will kiss King Jesus. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.